We can stand up in this place. I'm going to be reading from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. I'll find one. This is tradition, right? We got to have one. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, this, the, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you this day, today, are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your homes and on your gates. Man. Let's take the next little bit, and we're just going to pray. And I'm asking you to legitimately pray with me and just intercede for a moment and say, God, whatever you have in your will, I submit to you right now, right? Let's close our eyes and lift our hands and just... Just welcome in the presence of God for a moment. In the name of Jesus and all that that name represents, God, I'm asking you to move in this house today. God, we give you the authority. We submit our will to you. Whatever you want to do, God, I make myself subject to your will. I'm asking you, God, to move in this house. And I promise you, I'm going to flow right along with that spirit. God, wherever you want to take us, we're going with you. I refuse to resist against the will of God inside of my life. In Jesus' name, let's put our hands together and just say thank you Jesus not just for what he's done but for what he's going to do in Jesus name Jesus name you may be seated a few months back we went to Brazil on a missions trip and at the time I I led the group by myself because my wife Bianca was pregnant with Judah at the time oh yeah man I say the same thing every single time I see him. So, man, we're, so she, she wasn't able to join us, but when I was there, uh, the Coopers asked me on the last Sunday, on Easter Sunday, they were like, hey, uh, we want you to teach our adults this morning. Uh, just teach, just give them a Bible study about biblical parenting. I said, all right, I can, I can muster something up. I don't have a child yet. He's not born yet, but, you know, I've been in youth ministry long enough, and I've got the word with me, so I'm, I'm good. Like, we can, we can figure something out. And so we taught on biblical parenting, which I'll touch on in a little bit. But the truth of the matter is, I didn't, I didn't need to have a child to be able to teach on something like this. I think in youth ministry, something changed inside of me. When, the second I stepped into youth ministry, I remember that day very clearly. Uh, at the time, we were launching Ascend Church, and I remember... In that season of my life, it was a very strange and uh, a little bit confusing season. But I remember um, sitting down with Pastor and Sister Hoffman, and they said to me, hey, like, we want to give you the choice. You can go to Ascend and serve under Jamil McLaurin as a pastor there, or you can stay here and serve under us. And if you do, we want you to be the youth pastors here at First Church. And, you know, I think in that moment, I realized the power of a pastor and the power of submission, but... Also in that moment, my life changed forever when I said yes to becoming a youth pastor here at First Church. Because the second that we got married, we were also in youth ministry. In fact, we were literally on a cruise on our honeymoon getting calls about crazy stuff that's happening in the youth services that Friday. So like, like we stepped right into it. But the second we stepped into youth ministry, I realized that the, the phrase youth ministry is a simple facade for what it actually is. We do not we are not a part of youth ministry. We are a part of family ministry here at First Church. And even more so once we started to take over the next gen department here at First Church. 
And so families are the only reason why we, this ministry exists. And the truth of the matter is, as much as we love the students and we have them for a couple hours on Friday or one hour here on Sunday, the truth of the matter is, if we really want to impact the next generation of the church, the best place to start is in the home, not with the students, not with the kids. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk about the home today and, and what we can do as a church to equip and set loose the next generation here at First Church. You see, as an adult with a child of my own, I'm very different from the boy that I was 20 or 25 years ago, but at the same exact time, I still carry a lot of the things I carried as a kid. There's debates about what makes a person a person, whether it's nurture or nature. And I 100% believe that nature is a huge part of who we are today. We are born uh, different. We are born as individuals. We have, we're born with certain personality traits. But I, the longer I'm in ministry, the more and more and more and more I see how powerful nurture is to a child and to a person. The way we're raised impacts us probably far greater than how naturally we would become. The way you're raised and the way the home life is presented for a child impacts the way they view this world in ways that we really don't understand. And so even though I'm still, I'm a man now, I'm still somewhere deep down inside of me, still that socially anxious child that, you know, rode his bike down the neighborhoods and and peed during the alphabet parade in kindergarten. Like I'm still that kid because that's just who we are. We're still who we once were, even though we're different. And that's something I'll carry with me until I die. And today's message may seem like it's tailored towards parents, but I promise you this is the Bible. And everything that I'm talking about is tailored toward every single person, no matter what season you're in. It's cross-generational. It's cross-racial. It goes beyond any political beliefs. It, it, it goes down to the simple truth of what the Bible says and, and what it believes to be. And so there is a problem that I've seen in youth ministry, I just want to start talking about it for a little bit. What I've learned in youth ministry is how young people work. But not just young people, I've learned how parents work. I was able to see firsthand the mistakes that the parents made along with the wise choices that a parent would make and how it affected the kids that they have. You see, I'm able to understand the right and wrong approach to parenting from a unique perspective because we get to see the best and the worst of kids. We get to see your students at their best, dealing with everything they struggle with at home or in school, and then we get to see them at their, I'm sorry, their worst with, with, with whatever they struggle with, but also at their best. Man, we deal with students who are addicted with substance abuse or who have just gone through crazy things that I can't say publicly, but at the other side, we get to see them preach and we get to see them give their testimony. We get to see God use them. And so we get a unique perspective on the contrast that lies within every single one of us. And the average lifetime, lifespan of a youth pastor, I found out, is six months long here in America. That's pretty wild. Like I was surprised at first, but the longer I thought about it, it makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> The average modern-day church has a youth pastor, and when they hire somebody on, they'll last for six months and then take off. You see, Bianca and I, we've been a part of, you know, youth ministry for a lot longer, but we've been youth pastors for five years now, just over five years. And so we've, uh, with that, gives us a perspective of seeing the shift in tides, not just in students, but how parents parent. 
we get to see parenting styles change over the years. We get to see how it affects students. And, and I remember, man, I just felt something inside of me like, man, things are just changing. We need to change our approach to youth ministry. And then I came across a book that really put into words everything that I was feeling um, when it came to youth ministry. And this book is called The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt. In fact, the entire title is The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And it's not a Christian book. It's not a political book. It's a psychological book. It talks about the state of America. It talks about the times that we're in today and why we're here and what's causing it. And so it's a powerful, powerful book. But it talks about parents, what we do in our homes and what we allow and how we raise our kids and how it will affect America, how it's affected America over the last 30 to 40 years and how it will continue to affect the America that we live in. And so this book explains the state of America, the reason behind race riots, the reason behind transgender sports debates, the reason behind modern day feminism. This isn't political views. It's not conservative versus liberalism. It's, It's about culture and the direction that we're heading in. And so the book lays out these three lies that it says America has adopted into ourselves. Three lies that America now believes in and how it's affecting the state of where we are. And so he's going to put them up behind me. But the first lie I'm going to talk about is a lie that simply says, what doesn't kill us makes us weaker. This is a lie that American, America has adopted over the last 30 years. And it talks about safetyism. And the cult of safetyism and the difference between safety versus safetyism. You see, in today's America, more and more parents are desperate to keep their child safe, which is a good thing. But the problem with safetyism is you can hold your child back from experiencing anything that's uncomfortable to the point where they don't know how to grow. It talks about an obsession about an obsession with eliminating threats, both real and imagined. In fact, most of the time, the danger that we feel is not necessarily what's in front of our faces, but what we think could happen. To the point where people are unwilling to make reasonable trade-offs or demands by other practical and moral concerns. They're not willing to pay the price because they're too concerned about what might happen. And this deprives young people of experiences that their anti-fragile minds desperately need to grow and develop. It makes them prone to making more fragile, this, this mentality, and if it's taught in the home, it, it's prone to make young people more fragile, more anxious, and it's prone to seeing themselves as victims. The more you teach your child that the world is a dangerous place and they need to be safe and, and protected from all sides, makes them feel like they can't handle the world. And the problem is that every kid has to leave the home at some point. And so if you ha- take a young person or a young adult who has this mentality that everything out in the world is out to get them and I need to be super safe, the second mom and dad's hands are off them, they're stuck in a position where it's not the world is dangerous, their idea of the world now is dangerous. There's a quote that says to prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. Now, we all know that the world is crazy and it's getting crazier still. I'm not saying it's not crazy. But the truth of the matter is our job is not to make sure that the pavement in front of their steps is perfect and is clean and is balanced and is straight. Our job is to make sure that they have the right shoes to handle whatever the road has in front of them. 
You can't predict what they're going to go through, but you can train them enough to handle whatever they might go through. There's another quote that talks about candles and fires. It says, wind puts out a candle, but it energizes a fire. You see, children start off as candles, and you got to make them stronger and stronger. But if all you do is protect them, they're going to come to a place where they're old enough to live on their own, and a a small wind will just put them out. But if we grow them to be strong enough, the challenges in life will make them even stronger. It'll make them more energized. It'll give them more fire to burn. You see, stressors and natural unavoidable parts of life is going to happen if we protect our kids from everything that might hit them. They'll get to a place where they're unable to handle themselves when they are by themselves. You see, this, this mentality that the churches, or not the church, but America has adopted now leads to things like trigger warnings and safe places, safe spaces. It's like an immune system. The, the more you can allow the immune system to grow and, and, and take on and feed on new things, the stronger and stronger it's going to get. We tend to forget how, how anti-fragile children actually are. But this book lays out that children are incredibly, incredibly adapt and able to take on a whole variety of things. The next lie that this book points out is... To always trust your feelings. You see, words in America have changed their meaning over the last 30 to 40 years. Abuse, trauma, bullying. Specifically, those words, their definitions have changed over the years. You see, trauma prior to 1980 was only used for experienced physical trauma. Only something physically traumatic could be labeled as trauma. But after the 1980s, something changed where you start getting things like PTSD, which is a real thing. But then PTSD was specifically labeled as an extraordinary and terrifying experience that would invoke stress on anybody who went through that experience. This is war. This is sexual abuse. This is torture. These are, these are things where they say anybody across the board, if they experienced it, they would have this trauma. So it changed from physical, now it's more mental. And then even after that, in the, in the early 2000s, something changed with that definition again, where, where anything experienced by an individual as emotionally or physically harmful with lasting effects on the individual's mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being is now known as traumatic. The subjective experience on harm is now known as traumatic. It's not what happens to you anymore. Now it's how you feel about what's happened to you. That's what's considered traumatic in America. And if an individual feels like they're abused or bullied or experienced trauma, that's what they call it. You see, there was an experiment where they'd take these women and they would put makeup on their face and they would, they would make these scars. They would make their faces look like they were scarred. And then they said, hey, we're going to put you in an interview room. You're going to get interviewed. You're going to come back out and you're going to tell us what you think happened, how, they think, how you think they perceived you. Now, before they walked into their rooms, every contestant was pulled aside and they would change their makeup and they'd take it all away without them knowing. they say, hey, we're just going to touch it up. But they completely removed the scars without the ladies knowing. And they went into this interview. They came back out. And every single person said, I feel like they didn't like me because of how I looked, the scarring on my face. And this experiment showed that, that 
every single person has their own personal opinion of themselves. And if you subject that to every experience that you have, everything around you becomes the same thing, even though the person interviewing had no idea of any scarring at all. But they still felt like somebody was judging them or treating them differently because of it. You see, nowadays in schools, there are more and more boundaries that are being shoved back in order to protect the feelings of children and other parents. Classrooms are being set up with litter boxes for kids who think that they're animals so that they can go to the bathroom in those. Nowadays, gender-neutral bathrooms are being shoved into the faces of people who know differently. It's to protect feelings and perceptions of children, safe places in college campuses to protect the mental delusion of safety for young adults. See, society has gone to a place where the protection of, of an individual's feelings are so important that subjective truth means nothing in the face of an individual's emotional state. People will disregard what is true in order to make somebody feel more comfortable. And that's a problem especially if it gets into the, tr- in, into the church. You see, when the Bible starts talking about this, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Proverbs, it goes into saying, trust the Lord with your heart. Trust the Lord with your emotions. And then it goes even deeper and it says, and do not lean on your own understandings. And in fact, that means trust the Lord with your emotions and don't even trust your own understandings. Just give it all to God. Not just what you know, but what you feel as well. And it's important for us to understand that our emotions are not king. How we feel is not always true. The next lie, lie number three, is the us versus them mentality. You see, this is a lie that says that life is a battle between good and evil people. What this leads to is an overgeneralization of people. It's a perceived global pattern of negative biases on a single incident. You put people in boxes and you place labels on people because of how they look or how they once behaved or or what you think they might do. It's a binary way of thinking. It's black and white. It's right or wrong. It's all or nothing. It's good or bad. And quickly, we just put everything and everybody in these categories of right, wrong, good, or bad. And this is where cancel culture comes from. This is where holding people against their past without any room for forgiveness or growth stems from. This is a lie where race wars come from. This is where liberalism versus conservatism in this country comes from. This is where the mindset of a saint versus a sinner comes from in the church. When you start viewing people in that light, saint versus sinner. The truth of the matter is that line is, is pretty thin in each and every one of us. How far are you from a sinner? How close are you to even being a saint? You see, you can never sympathize with people that you can't identify with. How in the world can you reach people that you want nothing to do with? And so this book talks about the psychological state of America and why we're going there. And, you know, you can read it for yourself. It's really good. But I wanted to introduce my title for today, which simply says, The Coddling of the American Christian Mind. We're going to change it up a little bit. I feel like in the modern day church, I've seen some things change throughout throughout the years, and I've only been alive for 29 years, but I think that I've seen some changes since then. I've been part of the church my whole life, and I've seen how the church can change over the years, and I want to talk about 
these things. In fact, I mean, there's probably more than three, but I came up with three lies that the current day modern Christian American church faces. The first lie simply states that harvest is coming. I've heard it for a long time. I've heard it in conferences. I've heard it everywhere. You see, too often the church waits for harvest to come to the church. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's not biblical in any scope of biblical. We're building a church to bring people in. But let me tell you something. If all you're doing is waiting for somebody to walk in the doors, that's a problem with your own belief system on what the harvest actually is. You see, Matthew 9.37 says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest ain't few. The laborers are few. If you're curious on why, man, I want to see more guests in the church. I want to see more people walk through these front doors. The problem isn't the front door. The problem isn't the building. The problem is somebody not willing to step outside and say, hey, I want to teach you a Bible study. Something I desperately hate about the modern day church, let me tell you, is that we always expect the ministry. We always expect the pastor to teach the Bible studies. We always expect the ones who've already done it all these years to continue to do it. That's not the calling on your life. God's saying, bring somebody in your own house. Teach them yourself. If you've got a burden, God's got an anointing for you. If you've got the want, God's got the will. He's got the way for you. Stop assuming somebody else to do a better job. If God's placed it on your heart, it's meant for you. The second lie I want to talk about is that anointing comes with maturity. You see, I heard this quote, and I'm going to use it till the day I die because it's so good. But I heard a man say that if you're young enough to be tempted, you're old enough to be anointed. As a church and as parents, if you don't see your kids as spiritual warriors, how could they possibly see that in themselves? If you don't see your kids shoving back the gates of hell, tearing down strongholds, setting up fences that protect not just themselves, but the people around them, how in the world can they see that in themselves? If you don't see them as a preacher, how will they see it in themselves? If you don't see them as a missionary, how can they see that in themselves? Now, the reason why this is so difficult for the church is because we understand one truth, and that is that kids will always start where we end. They always stand on our shoulders. And when we begin to ignore the anointing and the ministry and the calling over our own lives, it's really hard to hold our children to that standard as well. If you've been ignoring the calling of God on your life, I promise you, it's that much harder to tell your children, you need to be, a, you need to be called, you're a missionary, you're a pastor. But God's not calling them first. He calls you first. You're the priest of the home. You're supposed to be that. You're supposed to be the example. If they start where you end, I'm asking you, where are you right now? How close are you to the calling of God? Have you answered the burden? Have you taken that burden and said, that's mine? Because that's where kids start. Please don't downsize the weight of the calling. 
I've seen it too many times. I think some of the best services I've been a part of is when we have testimony nights with our students. I've seen the anointing fall. I've seen it. Not everybody has seen it, but I've seen young people used of God in in incredible, incredible, incredible ways. And I'm telling you, if you can't see that in your own kids, you are holding them back from the call of God, the precious call of God. God's called them to be a prophet to the nations before they were ever born. The question is, did you know that about them as well? Did you know that about them? Did you know that? Did you know that about yourself? The third lie I want to talk about today is a parent's job is self-sufficiency. Now, what I mean by this is a lot of parents think that their job as a parent is to raise their kids. It's not true. Your job as a parent is to create a disciple. That's your job. Your job is to create an arrow, a weapon that can go out. Psalms 127, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. The truth of the matter is you don't have the rest of your life to be a part of your kid's life and be a part of their influential circle. But while you do, you need to challenge them in spiritual ways. You need to challenge them to do things that that they're not comfortable with. You need to push them to a place where they understand that my life is not just to have a good job and die with the 401k and a happy family around me. My job is to push the kingdom of God beyond something that I've seen in my day. That's the job of a parent and that's the purpose of your children. And if you don't understand that, how will your kids ever understand that? You see, having the children is like having money. It's stewardship. It's, it's what God trusts you with. It's what are you going to do with God's given you? What are they going to be when you're done with them? The music can come. You see, <laughs> I've known this for a while, but it's a little bit harder for somebody who's a youth pastor versus a pastor. And, you know, pastor always pushes and preaches towards the parents, but I want to take my shot at it today as well. You see, the home life is so powerful and impactful in a young person's life that we see the result of it on a Friday night at youth service. I'm telling you. I'll just be honest. We see the result of it. We've seen it. We see it. We see the kids who, who understand what it looks like. I, I, you know, I was a heathen growing up, but I, I'm telling you, I still remember the days, the days I'm not talking about a couple days. I'm talking about almost every single day where I'd wake up or I'd go to bed and I can hear my mom praying in her closet. I'm over on my phone watching Netflix or YouTube or whatever, trying to ignore it so I can pay attention to what I'm doing. But I promise you I heard that sound. I know what it sounds like to have prayer ringing through the floorboards of a home. Does your kid know what that sounds like? When's the last time they've seen you fold your face on an altar, crying out to a king, saying, I need, I need my life changed? When's the last time? Because they're going to start where you end. Jesus. Holy. 
Jesus name if you will stand we're going to respond to what God's trying to speak to somebody you can start in your seats but if you feel the urge I'm asking you to come to the front here there's no doubt in my mind that we are in the last days all the signs are there and the truth of the matter is it's not going to be just the elders it's not going to be the seasoned saints. It's going to be children. It's going to be teenagers leading the charge. If you can't see that in your child, how could they ever see that in themselves? I'm asking you to change your perception of who these children are. They are warriors in the sight of God, called as prophets to this nation, anointed and appointed to carry on the gospel of Jesus far beyond when we're dead and gone. seek the face of God for a moment. God, change me right now. I'm asking you, God, to place me upon the altar. Place me upon the altar right now. Take me to the threshing floor and separate me. Take me to the threshing floor and separate me, the good and the bad. Just take me apart right now, God. I can't stand, I can't stand to live in ignorance anymore. God, I'm asking you to touch the next generation. But God, touch the people of today's church. Allow this church to set up a standard, to set up a standard that challenges every single person to a lifestyle of holiness and righteousness like this church has yet to see. God, in the last days, separate me. Separate me. Separate me. Let me be different. 